I'm Dennis Tubergen. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Joining me on today's program in the second and third segments is returning guest, Mr. Harry Dent. Harry has been a prolific best-selling author over the years and uh, has been uh, well-known for his very accurate forecasts regarding stocks and regarding the economy. Harry was on the program about five months ago and suggested the probability was high that we would see a stock market correction going into the end of 2021. I'm going to get his updated views on that forecast in segments two and three of today's program, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. I also want to take just a moment and say thank you to many of you who were supportive of the recent release of my Retirement Roadmap book. Uh, The Retirement Roadmap book, when it was released about 10 days ago, became a number one Amazon bestseller in 11 categories. So again, thank you. And thank you also to many of you who have been very kind as to leave some nice reviews about the book. If you'd like to get a copy of this book on a complimentary basis, and the book, to give you a little background, is a revised edition of the revenue sourcing book that was released last year. And the book will give you some strategies to consider using in your own individual financial situation, given the crazy economy and the crazy world in which we find ourselves today. I happen to be of the opinion, as I'll talk about in this segment, that uh, financial markets uh, are artificial. I believe they may be about to change over the next several months. And certainly you want to make sure that you arm yourself with good information. And uh, it was my goal in putting together the Retirement Roadmap book to provide you with good information. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, I'd be glad to send you one on a complimentary basis. Visit the website RoadmapToRetirementBook.com and I'll be glad to send you a copy. Again, the website RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. Just let us know where to mail your copy of the book. And we'd be very glad to do that. Now, I, for most of the last year here on the program, have talked about the fact that I believe that stock prices and Federal Reserve policy are very closely linked. Now, it's no secret that I've been of the opinion that stocks are overvalued here. And as overvalued as stocks were, A year ago, they're even more overvalued today. In fact, they're more overvalued than at any time in history by many different measures. One of these measures is something called the Schiller-Cape Ratio. Now, the the Schiller-Cape Ratio is actually an acronym for the Schiller Cyclically Adjusted Price-Earnings Ratio. This ratio is sounding an overvalued alarm presently. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with a price-earnings ratio, basically you calculate a price-earnings ratio by taking the price of a stock and dividing by the earnings per share, and that gives you the price-to-earnings ratio. In short, it tells you how many dollars you need to part with to buy a share of stock, and in return, 
how many dollars per share you will get back in the form of earnings. Now, the Schiller cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio is the current price of the S&P 500 divided by the 10-year moving average of inflation adjusted earnings. So if the Schiller-CAPE ratio is low, since it's a 10-year moving average of earnings, when, it's, when it tends to be low, it tends to forecast that earnings will be up over the next few years, and as a consequence, stock prices may likely be up as well. And of course, the opposite is true whenever you have an elevated Case-Shiller cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. Now, the current level of the Shiller-Cape ratio is approaching 37 as I'm recording today's program. That is an all-time high. Now, for comparison's sake, the Shiller-Cape ratio stood at about 27 prior to the stock market decline beginning in 2007. Today, 37, just prior to the stock market decline at the time of the financial crisis, 27. That means today's Schiller-Cape ratio is nearly 40% higher than it was in 2007, just prior to the time that the stock market corrected. Now, as I've also discussed here on the program frequently, Warren Buffett's favorite stock market valuation measure is market capitalization to gross domestic product. Market capitalization is the total value of all stocks added together, and gross domestic product is the economic output of the United States. So it's the total value of stocks divided by total economic output. It's stated as a fraction. Now, this was the indicator that Mr. Buffett referenced in a speech in 1999, during which he forecast that stock prices were likely to fall because this ratio was so elevated. Well, as we all know, Mr. Buffett at the time was 100% correct. And if we move ahead to today... 22 years later, this indicator, the Buffett indicator, has stocks more overvalued than at any time in history, including 1999, when Mr. Buffett used it to forecast a decline in stocks. Couple these two indicators with the fact that we now have seen something this past week called a Hindenburg Omen and the probability of a correction goes up when it comes to stocks, in my view. Now, if you're not familiar with the Hindenburg Omen, it is the name given to market conditions when a large number of stocks on the New York Stock Exchange are making new lows, while at the same time, a large number of stocks are making new highs. Really, we have unstable market conditions. So we have an elevated Schiller-Cape ratio, we have an elevated Buffett indicator, and we have a Hindenburg omen, and incidentally, there has never been a market correction without a Hindenburg omen appearing first. 
Doesn't mean that a market correction occurs every time there's a Hindenburg omen, but it does mean there's never been a market correction without this condition that now exists in stocks appearing. For that reason, I would encourage you to get more information and think about how you're managing the money that you intend to use in your retirement. To that end, I'd encourage you to get the Retirement Roadmap book. At the outset of this segment, I mentioned that the Retirement Roadmap book, when released 10 days ago, was a number one bestseller in 11 categories on Amazon, and I'd be glad to send you a complimentary copy. All you need to do to get your copy of the book is go to the website RoadmapToRetirementBook.com and request it. The website, again, is RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Harry Dent. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program once again is Mr. Harry Dent. Many of you recognized Harry as a prolific best-selling author. And for our listeners today, he is offering a free newsletter, uh, which you can claim by visiting harrydent.com. The website, again, is harrydent.com. And Harry, welcome back to the program. Yeah, nice to be back, Dennis. So, Harry, last time you were on the program, which would have been springtime, uh, you were pretty convicted that we would see a major correction in financial markets, particularly stock markets, before the year is out. Um, have you changed your position on that? Well, yes and no. Yes, I do feel like we're going to see a peak between now and, and probably November, and, 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 and a good chance we'll see that first crash. One of the things I've found in my research in every major bubble in the last 100 years, Japan, uh, U.S., uh, others, you know, and, and, and it's that the first crash after a bubble, especially this magnitude, is like about 50% in just two to three months. So I think that's the next move. I would have expected that to happen by now, but it does. The market does look very toppy here. My best guess is that we we still go up into September, maybe November, but I'd say late September, and then we start to crash into year end early next year. And you see, if you see that first whack, and it's forty to fifty percent in two to three months, that's telling you the bubble's finally over. You know, in past times. I've been watching this bubble, and we get a 10% or 20% correction. Nope, that's not over for a bubble. It needs, it needs a, a, a clear, strong crash that says it's finally over. And if we don't see that, then the bubble continues. So I think we're going to see that in, in the next several months. And I think it, it could be starting now, and it could be – my best guess would be by late September, but it could be a little later. But this does look – like it's in its late stages. And my strongest cycle confluence, and Dennis, this goes all the way back to the late 80s. That I've always said that late 2022 will probably be the worst time for the markets in our lifetime. You know, not as bad as 32, but worse than 82 and 74 and other crashes we've seen. So I'm still expecting we're going to see a lot of damage by then. Now that we're starting later than normal on the cycles, and it is, the, the Fed has been successful and central banks at pushing this back year, year and a half from where it really would have naturally peaked, um, then I think that we're going to continue to see weak markets in, throughout 2023. But I do think most of the damage comes 
from somewhere late 2021 into the end of 2022. That that is the danger period. If you can just avoid that, get out of the markets and be safe and miss whatever last five or ten percent we might get here, I think you'll be well rewarded. So Harry, when you listen to what at least some uh, Fed members are saying that uh, it's it's time to taper. That uh, you know this this easy money policies these easy money policies are creating uh, consumer price inflation. Uh, is that taper talk just talk, or do you think they're actually going to do something? You know, I think they have to start. You know, you got Jackson Hole coming up. You know, now powell's got to get in front of the world as well i mean you just can't look like a maniac and say well we're just going to endlessly print money no matter what you have if you're going to print money so aggressively you have to at least show that when the economy's recovered enough you are going to tape you can't just act like well we're just going to do this forever now the truth is they have had to do it forever now 13 years this started out as a one-year strong stimulus program in late 2008, early 2009, into 2009. And frankly, Dennis, that part of the stimulus, I would have said yes. The first trillion, yes. Don't let the economy just break down more than it should just because it's breaking down. But to constantly have to print money every year and exponentially more, we printed more since COVID than we did in the entire 12-year cycle before this. I'm talking to have to print exponentially more tells you something very simple. The economy's dead, and you need it to wash out, get rid of the bad debts, zombie companies, excess, all this money going into speculate. You know, money velocity is the best indicator, and money velocity's been dropping since 1998 like a rock, and it's at early 30 levels already. It's going to go lower. Money velocity is saying this money's going into speculative investment and not productive investment, and that means you're going to have to have a major financial crisis. And, and again, I think it's right around the corner. So money velocity is telling us all this stuff is propping us up temporary as it has for 13 years, but none of it's leading to a sustainable long-term recovery. So, Harry, what does this financial crisis look like? Are we going to see banking failures like we did back in 2007, 2008? Um, is, 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 is this crisis going to look worse than that one? How, how do you see this playing out and what does it look like? Okay, well, first of all, it does look worse. You're going to see higher unemployment, a deeper downturn, and bigger stock crash. The last stock crash was 56%, if I remember correctly, in 2008, early 2009. I think this is going to be in the 70 to 90% realm, and it just depends on how the Fed plays it. I frankly think after they went so far after COVID, I mean, again, literally, you know, they printed like, I think, $4 trillion just since COVID, you know, as much as they did in all the 12 years before. After this much, if the economy gets weak again, um, then, then people are going to finally say, oh, this really doesn't work. I think everybody in the back of mind thinks you can't live off of money printing forever, but it keeps working. So I think they lose credibility. And, and I think you get a deeper crash, but I don't know that the banks get in a lot worse trouble because the mortgage lending has not been as wild as it was going into 2006 before the 2007-8 crash. So I think the biggest impact, Dennis, the clearest impact without a question is going to be financial markets. And guess who that hits? The top 20% that own 88% of financial assets outside of their primary home. 
So I think it's really going to hit financial markets, real estate, stocks, bonds, you know, anything but treasury bonds, the highest uh, quality bonds. And, and of course, that affects the wealthy people, and they're going to be spending less. It, it has been the top 20% that's been carrying this boom, not, not Homer Simpson. So I think it hits the top 20%, hits financial assets. But we will see a deeper downturn. And the real question will be, how long does it take to come out of it after such excesses? Well, if you're just joining me, I'm chatting today with Mr. Harry Dent. Uh, Harry is a multi-time best-selling author, and he has graciously offered to give all of our listeners a free newsletter subscription. All you have to do to claim it is visit harrydent.com. And Harry, when you mention a 70 to 90% correction, I mean, that, that's akin to, to, to 1929. Are, are, we, are we headed for round two of the 1930s here? Yeah, it, it is. And that, that's what's hard to understand here. The whole 70s, that was a long 14-year downturn after the Bob Pope generation peaked in spending and all this sort of stuff. And it kept going down in the back. You know, it, okay, but we never saw 70, 80, 90% stock corrections, okay? We did see that in 1929 to 30. The, the difference is, this is what I call, we've been in the fall bubble boom season. Bubbles go much more extreme and therefore have much steeper crashes. So if we were in a normal generational downturn, like, you know, after the, the 60s boom into the mid-70s, I'd say yes, maybe 50%. But no, you really, when you see bubbles of this magnitude, 70 to 90% is the norm. And frankly, Dennis, more like 80 to 90. So I think it might be a little less just because central banks are going to keep doing whatever they can to minimize. And then the question, as I said earlier, how much credibility do they lose? It'd be best, frankly, Dennis, if the system just washed out. And we did see a lot of banks and, and bad loans and zombie companies. I mean, we're carrying zombie companies. These are, these are large public companies, okay? Not small businesses, which would be way worse. 22% and growing zombie companies that cannot meet their debt service in a boom. So what do you think happens in a bust? So, so this is going to be the worst thing we see in our lifetimes, but I don't think it's as bad as 1929 to 32 because they did almost nothing to shield from that crash. Uh, so that was just you know, a, a bubble gone wild and then a crash gone wild. So that's why I say 70 to as much as 90%. But 90% would put us at the, the 29 to 32 crash was 89% in the Dow back then, which would be like the S&P 500 or maybe even more like the NASDAQ today. You know, Harry, in the past, I've talked to analysts who say that bubbles are symmetrical and they tend to take as long to unwind as they do to build. Um, where would you stand on that position? And <laughs> They don't know what they're talking about. I studied bubbles. They are wrong. I'll tell you the exact ratio. They crash twice as fast as they build. They build exponentially, especially in the last year or so, and then they crash twice as fast. So a typical bubble takes five years to build, two, two and a half years to crash. They are wrong if they say they unwind at the same rate. Dead wrong. People quote all types of stuff because nobody wants to scare people. I don't want to scare people either, except the truth is the greatest bubble in your lifetime, life. The, the closest comparison would be the 29 peak and the 32 crash. You have to get out of the way of it. You need somebody to shock you out of this and say, because everybody's going to say, oh, that's all right. Stop. No, they, even though they crash and we're a little bubbly, they'll go back to new heights. 
you will not see a new high in U.S. markets for the rest of your lifetime if you're over 50 years old. That's my forecast. The rest of your lifetime, you'll never see these levels in real estate or stock. So you better wake up. So, Harry, then, you know, when you when you look at this bubble unwinding, when, when it bottoms out, it, it seems that we're if, if, if you're safe with your money, if you keep your powder dry, so to speak, you're going to have uh, a really terrific opportunity. Uh, absolutely. Number one, the way to make money in bubbles, if you be in cash, you preserve your money. That's a good thing to do. A great thing to do is put it in the highest quality long-term bonds, like 30-year treasury bonds and 20-year AAA corporate. That's where the that's the safe haven. People say it's going to be gold. No, and it wasn't gold in 2008, man. They say it's going to be crypto. Crypto is the biggest bubble, so it's going to have the biggest burst, even though it's going to be the next big thing down the road, like the internet stock did 20 years ago, and now we're the you know at the top of the game. Okay, so it, if you put it in high quality, like 30 year, 10 year, 30 year treasury bonds, TLT, ETF. You're going to make 30, 40, 50 percent while stocks are going down 70, 80, 90. You're going to increase your cash position. And then you're going to have real estate and stocks and around the world, all types of financial assets at their lowest levels you'll ever, ever, ever see again. And you can invest in those. And, and the, the, the advice we give on that side, Dennis, is also contrary. The best places to put your money, I'm going to mean the developed world, Australia, New Zealand, and in India and Southeast Asia, those are the next strong growth areas in the emerging world. China's already peaking out and slowing down. So it will be Southeast Asia and India. Australia is the strongest developed countries in places like Sweden. And the U.S. will come back much stronger than Europe. So, so yes. But, but you also want to be in aging sectors. If I'm going to buy stocks in the U.S., my number one pick would be anybody associated with nursing homes and assisted living centers. That'll be the number one demographic growth segment in aging countries. So, so yes, huge opportunity. That's what I stress. If you just get out of the way, maybe I'm wrong and the market goes up another 10 or 20% instead of two or five, whatever. If you just give this up, get safe now and let this crash happen, the world will be your oyster and it will only take two, three years max to get to that buy opportunity in a lifetime. Real estate tends to take longer, but for stocks and normal financial assets, oh my God, it's just going to be the people who preserve their money are, are first of all, they're going to be people who have money to invest in, but you're going to see the buy opportunity of a lifetime guaranteed damn near from my point of view, if this crash happens. So just get out of the way. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Yes, this bubble keeps going up. No, bubble in history has gone up forever and every bubble ends badly and crashes at least twice as fast as it built so don't listen to this stuff saying oh the fed can 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 taper this gently and no there is no soft landing to bubbles ever and if it is the first time then i'll just say i'm wrong i don't plan on being wrong well, my guest today is Mr. Harry Dent. You can claim a free newsletter from Harry at harrydent.com, and I'll continue my conversation with him when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Harry Dent. Uh, you can get a free newsletter from Harry by visiting the website harrydent.com. The website, again, is harrydent.com. And uh, Harry, you had mentioned that uh, you expect real estate is likely going to be a casualty when this bubble bursts. 
Um, is it going to be as bad as it was during the financial crisis, or how do you see real estate playing out? Yes, yes. This is the second real estate bubble. The first one, the crash actually, and from you know early 2006, it peaked ahead of the uh, stock that time. And the crash that lasted into 2011-12 was about 33, 34% in the U.S. That was actually worse than real estate went down in the Great Depression, only because back then it was much harder to get mortgage loans. And that was not as much. It was a minor real estate bubble and a major stock and financial bubble. So 33, 34%. This time I'm predicting 40 to 50% because this will be the final bubble. Now, real estate, a lot of people say, well, real estate adjusted for inflation only gone about as high or a little higher than it was before, Harry. So what's the big deal? And GDP is higher. No. Compared to fundamental demand, which I have always been able to project with my demographics, fundamental demand is way lower than it was at the last peak, and prices are much higher. So, so relatively, real estate is more overvalued, and it's going to take about a 50% correction. Now, people got to listen to this. 50% in stocks is bad. 50% in real estate is death because people have mortgages against it and, and these loans fail. And that's what hits the banks. And that's what hits people's stuff. And I actually tell a lot of people, I, I've had people come and say, oh, I got this one property with all, that I own. Almost, I paid down the mortgage. I got this other one with a big mortgage. I should get rid of the one with the big mortgage. I'm like, no, keep the one with all the equity in it. You're going you're, you're gonna to make hay on that. The mortgage is likely to be forced next time to be written down to some degree by the banks when they realize they can't just bail their way out of this one like the last one. And you're going to get uh, your more. I'd say pay, sell both the properties. But if you're going to keep one, keep the one with the high mortgage because the bank may have to share in your risk and downturn. In fact, very, very likely will have to. Harry, when you look at the health of the economy, and you alluded to this in the last segment, and then you take a look at the fact that you know we've got rent moratoriums that are are still in effect in much of the country. We've got student loan uh, moratoriums. We have a enhanced unemployment benefits are going to be running out here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, that's a lot of headwinds for the economy. Do you see that maybe it's this uh, government these government policies changing or being pulled back that could be the catalyst for the the next downturn? Yeah, yeah, no, actually, I just wrote this in my newsletter recently, these forbearances of mortgages. You know, people have been, okay, you can't foreclose on mortgages. Well, that's starting to lift. There's going to be like a, a, a like a trillion aid in mortgages over the next 12 months. There's forbearances lifted. And in the minimum estimates by Zillow, 25% of those people are still in trouble and going to have to put on the market. 50% maximum, my estimate, is going to start at 25%. That's going to help trigger the recession. Once the recession hits, it's going to be 50% plus, maybe 100%. So, yes, all of these things that have been pushed off. See, see, this is the typical delusion we've had all the way back to 2008. Back then, it was like, oh, this is a short-term financial crisis. If we can just print a bunch of money and get over it, the economy will go back to normal. My research was saying from day one, no, 2007 was the top of the biggest generational boom in history and the biggest bubble in history, and you're going to see 14 years of a slow economy. So it's a long-term problem. Same thing here. They're thinking, oh, yes, if we can just get the economy goosing, then we can lift all these moratoriums and we'll get back to normal. We do not, mark my words, we do not go back to normal when this thing crashes. We only get back to normal when we wash out all these debts and, and, and barely surviving zombie companies and 
In addition, starting in about late 2023, early 2024, when the millennial generation actually puts us in a favorable uptrend for the first time since 1961 for spending again because of their generational trend. So, so we are a couple years away from even having a chance at a sustainable boom, and we won't even have that if we don't wash out all this terrible debt and, and excessive uh, financial speculation out of the economy, which money velocity is telling us is giving us almost nothing long-term in return. We've got the best thing, this is horrible to say, Dennis, the best thing is for these policies to fail so bad that the governments and central banks never try to mastermind and keep an economy going and, and, and not let the economy rebalance itself, which free market capitalism does so very, very well and why it's so successful long-term, they have basically killed the golden goose here. So we have to now kill the killers of the golden goose. Central banks have to fail and be so desperate that nobody even lets them print money again as a Band-Aid solution that only makes it worse long-term. So I think the chickens come home to roost here. Central banks lose credibility, and we no longer try to print our way out of a recession forever. We just let the damn thing happen and get rid of this giant load of debt and zombie companies that are standing in the way of any long-term prosperity in the future. Harry, you mentioned that uh, maybe in 2024 or so that uh, the generational spending of the millennials could potentially lead to the next boom cycle. For our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with some of your demographic research, could you drill down on that comment a bit? Yeah, yeah. Basically, I mean, the breakthrough insight, many, but the, the biggest one back in the late 80s when I was just doing nonstop research was that, you know, we, we actually knew spending for the first time in history, starting in 81 with the expenditure surveys the U.S. government was doing and, and some other countries doing in the world. And, and what it showed us was people enter the workforce on average at age 20 and spend the most money in their entire life at age 46. Well, damn, that's important information. That's the family cycle. And when you have new generations run up that family cycle in increasing numbers, that's what creates the boom. My research back in the 80s told me the boom that started in early 83 would not peak until late 2007. And then we would go into a slowing period into 2022-23. All the way back there told me that. Why do we have to keep printing money to cover up this downturn, which naturally should happen? And, and, and that's why we can't ever come out of it by just printing money. But the same research shows, okay, Generation X, the downturn, the slow side of the baby boom generation, the ones that followed them, that their slowdown in spending will be over by 2023, and the millennials will drive us up. Now, the millennial generation, since it had so much impact from immigration, hit the first half of it stronger than the second half. Most of that uh, that. A millennial boom will come between 2024 and 2037, and then we will never really see higher generational trends again. And the millennial generation boom does not last as long, nor is it as steep and strong as the baby boom. So we'll get a nice 50s-like boom from, say, 2024 to 36 to 37. And then the U.S., frankly, Dennis, will have seen its better days, the best by, you know, back in 2007, and, and, and we, the millennial generation does not take us to new heights over the peak in baby boom spending all the way back in 2007. So this, is, this will be a turning point 
in North American history. We will never see an economy as strong or our leadership. And of course, where's it going? It's all going to Asia. And I said it before, not even China. China is maturing in urbanization and, and, and is already has the first develop, uh, emerging country to have declining demographic trends since 2011. So it's all going to be Asia, Southeast Asia, India, and of course, eventually Africa and Middle East and stuff. But that's going to be the real focus. So it's no mystery why we had a slowdown after 2007. And when this slowdown finally levels out in the next couple of years, where the next booms will be the strongest. This is this is not a mystery. The problem is, Dennis, economists aren't taught demographics. I had to find it myself and flesh it out myself. I, I quit my I, I started as, a, as an econ major. And after three courses, I quit and switched to accounting and finance and learned something useful. And then I found demographics and invented my own economic theory because economists are so I hate to say it lame. Well, my guest today is Mr. Harry Dent. You can get Harry's free newsletter, newsletter rather, by visiting harrydent.com. And uh, Harry, just to, to, to finish up this segment and, and expand on that last comment you made, you're really uh, forecasting that uh, Asia, India, and, and that part of the world is uh, really going to be the next area of prosperity. Um, what type of industries do you believe that will be bullish for? Well, you know, it, it, it's just the same kind of like capital goods always do better than, you know, everyday consumer stuff. But, you know, this the next big generational boom in spending is going to be in that part of the world. It, it started with China, Japan, then China, and then it goes to Southeast Asia, then India, and then Asia is done. But Asia is not going to be done until 2065. I'm going to be and everybody listening that's going to be dead by then, okay? Almost. So, so for our lifetimes now, people that are have money and you know their kids have left the nest. Most of the people listening, hey, the the next boom app, this one's done, and they tried to revive it, and they're going to fail, and they need to fail to get out of the way so we can clear the deck. This next boom is is going to be stellar in the right places, and then and fortunately in very big places. Southeast Asia and India have way more population than China and Japan put together and they're going to do the same they're just going to grow like china they're not going to be so much they'll be high tech and stuff always but it's going to be basic stuff they're going to be building homes and they're going to be buying more cars they're going to go from one car for family to two and from crappy cars to, to great cars you know it's just going to be that type of normal boom with many many more people you know 1.4 billion in India, you know, more than China. India is going to be a larger country. But by the end of this century, uh, China is going to go from 1.35 down to 1 billion. And, and, um, and, and, and India is going to go up, you know, to as high as 1.6 and then level off. So, so that's where the action is. And again, this is no mystery. This is plain arithmetic demographics. A 10-year-old could understand this if I could sit down and explain it to him. And economists can't get it because they think it's all about government policy. Governments need to get the hell out of the way, mostly. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Harry Dent. You can get his newsletter by visiting harrydent.com. And, uh, Harry, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks for your time today, and I'd love to have you back down the road. Sure. I enjoyed it, Dennis. We will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you're listening in today. 
And thanks again to my special guest expert this week, Mr. Harry Dent, for joining us on today's program. As I mentioned in the first segment of today's program, if you'd like to get a copy of my recently released book, Retirement Roadmap, uh, which incidentally, thanks to your support, was a number one bestseller on Amazon when it was released 11 days ago. So thank you so much for all of your support. And I would be glad to send you a copy of the book. If you'd like to have one, all you have to do is visit the website, RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. The website, again, is RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. And I'd be very glad to send you a copy of the book, which will offer strategies for you to consider to use in planning for your retirement in today's environment. The second chapter of the Retirement Roadmap book is titled Central Bank Lies in a World that Has Changed. And the chapter begins with a quote from one of the founding fathers of the United States, Mr. Thomas Jefferson. Quote, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until, until their children wake up homeless on the very continent their fathers conquered. A very prophetic quote from Mr. Jefferson, in my opinion. And we are doing precisely what Mr. Jefferson warned us not to do. See, in 1913, the Federal Reserve was born. Now, the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, is a private group of bankers. So despite Mr. Jefferson's stern warning, in 1913, the politicians in control at the time decided to give private bankers the control to issue currency. Well, that, in my view, made 1913 probably the worst year in American history. The Federal Reserve was born in 1913, as was the income tax. Now, shortly after the Federal Reserve was formed in 1913, these private bankers that were controlling monetary policy decided that the U.S. dollar didn't need to be backed entirely by gold. So what did they do? They reduced the backing of the dollar by gold from 100% backed, meaning the dollar was 100% fully backed by gold, to having the dollar be backed only 40% by gold. As a result, the currency supply expanded 250% and currency began to be created out of thin air. Well, one thing that I have learned, and you have probably learned also by living through the past few years about created currency, is that when currency is created, it has to go somewhere. And currency creation creates this cycle. Currency creation is, by definition, easy credit, which leads to debt levels rising, which leads to asset bubbles, which leads to asset bubbles bursting. This is what I talked about in the last segment with my special guest, Mr. Harry Dent. We believe that many financial assets are now in a price bubble, and we are close to that bubble bursting. 
But the reality is this. When bubbles burst, it's the predictable outcome of the currency money cycle. The prosperity illusion bubble created by currency creation, by manufacturing currency, if you will, is important to understand. Let me give you just a really quick example. Let's say that I gave you a credit card with a $100,000 limit and you had no obligation to pay it back. You can buy whatever you want. You can spend the money on whatever you want. You can travel. You can buy cars. You can buy boats. You can buy furniture. You can buy whatever you want. You can spend wildly until you hit the credit limit, and then you have to stop. Your lifestyle would appear to be very prosperous until you hit the credit limit. Prosperity illusions are fueled by debt-fueled consumption. See, debt-fueled consumption in the economy works exactly the same way. And at some point, the collective consumption of those participating in the economy reaches its limit, and that is when bubbles burst. Now, this is very logical when you think about it rationally because debt-fueled consumption means you're spending tomorrow's production. If you have cash in the bank to buy a new car for $40,000, you go to the car lot and you write a check for $40,000 and you own the car. When you pay cash for the car, you spent prior production. In order to have $40,000 in the bank to pay for the car, you had to go to work, you had to save money until you accumulated enough to buy the car for cash. Now, if you didn't pay cash for the car, but instead borrowed the money, you now have to make payments on the car, and you're spending now tomorrow's production. To be able to make car payments, you've got to go to work and earn a paycheck. Here's the point. Today's production is not infinite. Today's production and tomorrow's production is finite or limited, and bubbles burst when enough of tomorrow's production has been consumed by today's consumption. In other words, when we hit the collective credit card limit, the debt-fueled consumption has to stop, deflation sets in, and the bubble has to burst. I believe we are now nearing that end point. And that's why I'd like to invite you to get a copy of the Retirement Roadmap book, The Retirement Roadmap book is available by visiting the website RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. The website, again, is RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. If you let me know where to mail you a copy, I'll be very glad to send you a copy as well as some bonus information. All the information and the book are free. All you need to do to request your copy is visit RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. The website, again, is RoadmapToRetirementBook.com. Also, if you're not yet an RLA app user, I would invite you to go to the App Store on your smartphone and search under Your RLA. That's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A. You'll see the RLA app that you'll be able to download for free, and it will get you access to all of our resources absolutely free. So, again, on the App Store, search under Your RLA and download the RLA app. That's all the time I have for this week. 
Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.